Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you via the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, it's the examined year, 2022. Our annual look back at the significant events that shaped the last 12 months. Because the unexamined year is not worth reviewing. So Josh, no insurrections at the Capitol this year. No, but another institution in Washington, D.C. has been the site of controversy. It's the U.S. Supreme Court. There's been a, a string of rulings that have got many people questioning the role and legitimacy of the nation's highest court. Later in the program, we'll ask Stanford law professor Bernadette Myler about the year in Supreme Court controversy. But of course, Supreme Court decisions weren't the only thing to make our jaws drop this year. I mean, you've seen some of those images coming from NASA's James Webb Telescope. Oh Lord, yes, those are so fantastic. And that's why we'll also be talking to Nick Riggle from the University of San Diego about the year in deep space photography. We'll ask Nick how images like these may change the way we think about the universe. This year has also changed the way we think about war, thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Many of us found ourselves asking questions about the first all-out armed conflict between two European nations since World War II. In a moment, we'll talk to Tamsin Shaw from New York University. Tamsin writes extensively about disinformation and Vladimir Putin's Russia, and we'll talk to her about the year in developed nations at war. But first, we'll hear some of the sounds from the conflict in Ukraine. Madam Speaker, the President of Ukraine. Dear Americans, I thank you for your efforts in helping Ukraine to defend our freedom. Now we've arrived to Russia. I would like to start by saying that the modern Ukraine is completely, was completely created by Russia. Ukraine is not just a neighbor, neighboring country to us. It is an inherent part of our own history, culture, spiritual space. Russia could stop its aggression if it wanted to. Russians are still poisoned by the Kremlin. Do Ukrainians know about these choices? Do they understand that their country has become not even a protectorate, now it's a colony with puppets at its helm? Against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. Now, Josh and I may not be able to offer much in the way of battlefield strategy or negotiation tactics, but philosophers have come up with some tools for thinking about the ethics of war, like just war theory. Tamsin Shaw is professor of European and Mediterranean studies and philosophy at NYU. We asked her what just war theory could tell us about what's happened this year in Ukraine. I think just war theory tells us pretty unambiguously that Russia is waging an unjust war in an unjust way because Ukraine was no threat to them at all. Um, they invaded as an act purely of aggression to take over Ukraine's sovereign territory 
And the way that they're behaving in the war has also really been a breach of um, ethics in terms of just war theory. It hasn't been in any way proportionate or humane. They've acted with extreme brutality and also expressed some genocidal intent from the Kremlin. Whereas on Ukraine's side, they were just invaded and they're fighting an entirely just war against the Russians to defend themselves. And they've done it in ways that are proportional. They seem to have been um, treating their prisoners properly in accordance with the Geneva Convention. Yeah, they're fighting a just war against an extremely unjust aggressor. So that's very helpful. That seems like a very uh, clear way of applying just war theory, uh, both to Ukraine and to Russia. But what about its application to other actors? So there are plenty of allies who are supplying arms to Ukraine. Does just What does just war theory have to say about those allies? Because presumably those allies aren't defending their own citizens. Are, are they justified in in aiding Ukraine in this conflict? It's a trickier question to think about what the allies are justified in doing on each side, because, of course, Russia now has a pretty strong alliance with Iran. And I would say that the NATO allies of Ukraine, by arming Ukraine, insofar as they are fighting a just war and following the rules of a just war, it seems reasonable to help to arm them in to do that, um, you might think that we have an obligation to do that because they are simply the victims of unjust aggression and there's potentially a disastrous humanitarian situation there. So people might think that that is debatable. The trickier area is where you would get into an escalation that involves open conflict between Russia and the NATO powers. That's more difficult. There were debates early on about the no-fly zone and whether it would involve having to shoot down Russian planes, which would completely change the status of the war. I think from the point of view of Iran and being an ally of Russia, they're an ally of a power that is waging an unjust war. So they're not themselves justified so what about this other theory, the so-called golden arches theory that was proposed by Thomas Friedman in 1996? The idea was no two countries that have a McDonald's have ever fought a war against each other. And I think the, the thought was supposed to be we shouldn't really expect that to happen because, you know, capitalist consumer uh, countries have a vested interest in a certain degree of stability. And so they're unlikely to go to war with each other. Now, that now looks like it didn't really hold up. And I'm sort of wondering, why did we ever believe that? I mean, did did we assume human beings are rational agents, which is always a bad bet? Or, or did we fail to imagine a different kind of rationality that might lie behind the actions of a Putin? Like, what, what, what went wrong with our thinking? I think part of the problem was that people used to think that free market economies naturally tended to be liberalizing so that they would create liberal democracies. And that just hasn't turned out to be the case. In fact, we're now seeing some liberal democracies going in the other direction towards authoritarianism. And we're also seeing the creation within liberal democracies of enormous 
monopolies because people can see that it's in their interests to create those huge monopolies rather than to defend competition. As Peter, Peter Thiel has said, competition is for losers. Um, so at that level, I think we had unrealistic expectations. But also, yes, somebody like Putin, I think we weren't expecting a modern leader to be prepared to put his own people through so much. So we thought of states acting rationally in terms of the interests of their own people, whereas Putin isn't behaving rationally in that sense. I, I agree with you that just because like Putin ha- has invaded Ukraine doesn't mean that it was a good thing to do, and that's just a mistake. Uh, but I think there's this like big question about like what does any of the rest of us do about it? So on the one hand, you don't want to have somebody who can just bullyingly walk into a country and take their stuff and have no repercussions. On the other hand, he's very powerful and has nukes and uh, yeah that's terrifying like how should the rest of the international community respond to this situation well i think we have an obligation to help ukraine insofar as we can i mean a moral obligation because they are being threatened with pretty much genocidal war from russia But of course, we also have a moral obligation not to escalate this to the point that there is nuclear war, either a regional nuclear war or obviously a more global nuclear war. So it has to be weighed very carefully and we have to proceed very cautiously. But I don't think we can just leave the Ukrainians to accept this or tell them that we're afraid of escalation. So you just have to let Russia do what they want. Something that's been a little surprising to me has been to see some commentators in the West argue that the Russian invasion of Ukraine wasn't totally unjustified. And that's something that's I found a little bit shocking. Uh, people point to, for example, the expansion of NATO uh, as either a factor or even perhaps a justification for Putin invading Ukraine. So what's going on with that? Right. I found that shocking as well, although it is Kremlin talking point number one, so it wouldn't be (laughs) shocking from their point of view. But there are people that subscribe to um, a view called political realism or neorealism who would think that there is a way of explaining international affairs which is not a normative view, it doesn't involve just war theory, but just says that you have to have a balance of powers in order to have peace. So if a country feels threatened, you expect them to act aggressively, and that means peace breaks down. And so some of those people think that the expansion of NATO was a threat to Russia. John Mearsheimer is one person who's expressed this view, but so have many others. And that we should therefore have expected Putin to um, defend himself um, by, say, annexing more territory or you know, a number of other things that he could do to neutralize the threat, when in fact Ukraine was no threat to him. And NATO is just a defensive organization 
it's not an offensive organization where if one of the powers goes to war, then the others will follow. It's just to prevent attacks, um, originally specifically by powers like Russia. And Russia has armed itself to the hilt with tactical nuclear weapons over the last decade. So to say that Russia is no threat to its neighbors would also be a little naive. Yeah, so one of the like few positive things that I've seen come out of this situation is some of the displays of solidarity between Ukrainians and at least some Russians. So like Ukrainians have this amnesty program where Russian soldiers can surrender and then they'll be sort of treated well and and hopefully repatriated. Like I think there are like there's some difficulty implementing this in a war zone. But just the idea that you have the citizens of these two countries cooperating, even though one of their governments is trying to, like, obscure from them the nature of what they're doing, is kind of encouraging. Do you think that there's any sort of positive lesson to be drawn from that? Right. As I said before, I don't think these are populations that wanted to go to war with each other. And the Ukrainian leadership didn't want to go to war. It's really just the Kremlin. And I think dragging your own people into a war that they don't really want, even if they're prepared to go along with it to some degree, is a moral harm to those people. And it's very good to see that some of them are responding by just trying to maintain an alliance with the Ukrainians and that this is um, a reciprocal relationship on the ground where people just want to help one another. And what do you think the, the long-term consequences of this conflict are likely to be? Do you, do you think that perhaps it could shore up international alliances and, and ultimately lead to a greater degree of peace? Or on the contrary, do you think that it's, there's going to be sort of copycat invasions and we might see more conflicts between OECD nations? Well, of course, that's the big question of whether China is going to take Taiwan. And obviously, they're looking very closely at how the West responds to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And of course, what Putin's done is introduce this idea of um, a nuclear attack. And for the first time in a very long time, people are worried about nuclear war. And of course, you know, we have a number of nuclear powers, China included, and nobody wants to see nuclear escalation. I personally think it's unlikely, and Putin has walked back his language about a first strike, although he constantly wants to keep us on our toes with that, because the way nuclear threats and nuclear deterrents work is by making people believe that you're prepared to do that. So I think it has altered that balance. I think in terms of nuclear deterrence, there's definitely been a shift in global power relations that might be important in the future. Well, here's hoping things turn out for the best. Thank you so much for joining us, Tamsin. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you guys, and let's hope next year brings better news. Tamsin Shaw from New York University on the year in Developed Nations at War. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. 
Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.